0: Hey guys, welcome to the Becca Cook show. I have a very special guest today. Uh, he's a friend and he is an author. He's written, I think, six books, uh, on human sexuality from a Christian perspective. And, uh, we're going to discuss his latest book today called Christians in a cancel culture, speaking with truth and grace in a hostile world. Please welcome Joe Dallas.
1: Hey. Thank you for having me, Beckett. It's good to see you again. Good to see you.
0: So let's start off, Joe, if you don't mind, just kind of, because a lot of people in my audience may not know uh, your story. So could you just kind of give us a brief history of who Joe Dallas is?
1: Yeah, uh, on this kind of thing, I got to say I'm an accidental apologist, (laughs) Beckett. Uh, I've uh, been just a little old counselor. For the last 34 years i've uh, had the pleasure of running a biblical counseling ministry to men and women who are dealing with sexual issues and uh, i began that because i've been one of those people Uh, i spent about six years of my uh, life as a young man as both a gay activist and as an apologist for pro-gay theology so when i was in my 20s i was very active with a pro-gay church And I was very committed to promoting the idea that homosexuality is uh, actually biblically condoned and that the Christian population needed to convert to a pro-gay viewpoint based on what I believed were uh, solid theological grounds. Problem was I wasn't fully convinced of what I said I believed, but it was certainly what I wanted to believe. Uh, But I had gotten a very good grounding earlier than that in my life Under Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, and I had spent years studying the Bible, and I understood how to rightly divide the word of truth, but I also wrestled with my own sexuality. And like many people in the church today, I tried to resolve that conflict not by uh, repenting of homosexual behavior and resisting homosexual desire and crucifying the old nature. Rather, I tried to rewrite the truth to accommodate my nature rather than let the truth override my nature. And uh, you can only do that for so long, in my opinion. Uh, It's kind of like holding a basketball underwater. You can (laughs) do it for a while, but man, your arm gets tired, you know? Yeah. And by the time I was 29, I was tired. I mean, I've, I, and, and the irony is everything in my life was going beautifully situationally, but I, I felt this, this nagging, relentless unease that I was outside God's will. And then that unease turned into a conviction. I am outside God's will. And that the conviction turned into a question. Do I care whether or not I'm outside God's will? And if I do, do I care enough? to really submit myself and say, Lord, if I have been wrong, I am willing to face it and to admit it, and I will follow you regardless. And until I reached that point, I I really was not standing on truth, because you're not really going to stand on truth so long as you have a prearranged idea of what you want the truth to be and what you're going to insist it is, whether it is or is not true. And that was when god brought me to repentance now that was years before i started my ministry which i've been at since 1987. so that was all well and good. And what's the name of your ministry it's genesis biblical solutions in tustin california a counseling ministry okay great and uh like i said i've been at that for a few decades but over the last decade and i gotta say especially in the last five years or so more and more i've found that the culture not only does not agree with what I do, and I almost want to say, who cares? I mean, I, I'm not indifferent, but I'll, by the same token, as Christians, we don't judge what's right or wrong by whether or not we're getting cultural approval. But what did catch my attention was how much hostility was growing towards a biblical viewpoint of human sexuality and, and how that hostility was getting translated now into restrictions, Mm-hmm. It's one thing when people are hostile towards you, you know, I mean, I've, I've had the name calling, I'm sure you've had it too, where people just say, you know, you're, you're a homophobe, you're a self-hating gay man who won't admit it. And you're ridiculous, right. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, fine. But now it was getting translated into laws. You may not counsel teenagers. You may not operate in this way. If you're going to be a part of this corporation or this association And more and more, I felt like the noose is tightening around the necks of people who hold a traditional view on sexuality. But then about two years ago, I came to realize, no, it's not just tightening around the necks of Christians who hold a biblical view on sexuality. It's also tightening around the necks of anyone who holds traditional views on social justice, life within the womb, the way to salvation, eternal judgment, issues much broader than the gay-straight issue or the transgender issue. And that's when it became clear to me, wow, we are in a culture which is being indoctrinated to believe that our positions are not just stupid, but that they are dangerous. Right. And that we thereby have to be stopped. Now, my feeling is, okay, uh, Jesus said, servants not above his Lord. Okay, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Don't be surprised. That's not the point. I don't think we need to be running around trying to avoid being opposed or even persecuted. But by the same token, I think we do need to do what we can do to avoid being limited. Because we got a job description, right? Ambassadors for Christ, salt, light, stewards of truth. You know what? I can't do that if I'm muzzled. I can't do that if I allow myself to be limited. Now, I understand, you know, as we speak, there are Christians in Afghanistan who are facing certain death. I get that. So I'm not going to compare what we're dealing with to severe life-threatening persecution. But by the same token, so long as we are in a nation in which we can vote, we can speak our mind, we can speak our conscience, and we can defend certain liberties that our Constitution guarantees us, I think now is the time to shake off the apathy and the passivity and say, we do need to speak up. I'm not saying, let's go fight the culture wars. I'm uh, That's not my point. I do think every believer, though, is commissioned more than ever, Beckett, to be an apologist, a defender. And uh, for that reason, I just realized I'm taking a very long-winded way to get to this point. (laughs) No, I like it. For that reason, I felt strongly enough to write a book about the subject. But that is, in essence, my story. I was a gay-identified man who also tried to identify himself as Christ-following and openly gay-pursuing same-sex relationships. I realized the error. God brought me to repentance. God did a restorative work in my life. He also happened to bring a woman into my life who I fell deeply in love with. Now, I know this is the point where a lot of people say, oh, well, that's the narrative, isn't it? If you repent of homosexuality, then at some point God's going to give you a wife and you're going to live happily ever after. That is not true. And I never sought to get married. I never even sought to experience any kind of change in my sexuality. My whole thing was obedience. I have been disobedient. God helped me to now be obedient. Guide me into where you want me to go and what you want me to be. But then as I pursued not only family life, but also my life in the ministry, that's when I realized we're going to have to be, and I mean we, all of us, yeah a lot more like Nehemiah's guys who are sitting there on the one hand rebuilding. Good. So they got tools in one hand, but they, they had to sharpen their weapons as well to fend off the people who were going to try to keep them from the rebuilding that they needed to do. If we're members of the body of Christ, we got a lot of rebuilding to do in the lives of the people who come to the church to be disciples, and we ourselves are needing to be discipled. Well, we can't do that if we can't speak the truth and give the full counsel of God. So that's why I, I not only f- began to feel so strongly about the need to be clear and unafraid, but also the need to write a book about that very topic, cancel culture.
0: Yeah, and and the thing is, I mean, it's so the book is so well written. And it's so disorganized uh, in a really clear, concise way. And it's so important. This book is so important for Christians to read. That, I mean, because as you know, I mean, so many Christians are, are falling for the lies of the culture, as I talk about all the time on my show. Uh, Christians are falling. So this this book is really good for Christians who are kind of waffling on, it, you know, the LGBTQ thing, the abortion right. thing, the uh, progressive Christianity thing, the, uh, you know, CRT and transgenderism, like all these issues. The culture is so powerful and so many Christians and so many churches are caving to yeah. the culture. It's just like and I we, we, I think you mentioned this in your book. I mentioned it in my book, but we need to be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And be, we're, in, we're aliens in a foreign land. And we, we, we knew they knew what the God's word was. And they, they knew that if they obeyed God's word, they were going to go into a fiery furnace, Mm -hmm. but they did it anyway, because they didn't want to compromise the word of God by one iota. So that's why I think this book is so important, especially for the church. Was
1: that your main focus was for the church? You know, Beckett, yes, although in the book, I did try to point out it's not just Christian conservatives who are feeling this pressure. Any social conservative, and there are plenty of agnostic or atheist social conservatives, Mormon social conservatives, or, you know, social conservatives with other world views who still believe in, in certain, uh, principles about marriage and sexuality and about social justice who are feeling the the same pinch. And by the way, there are even openly lesbian, gay, and transgender people who strongly, as I may disagree with them on some issues, I strongly agree with them on other issues, and they hold to the belief that there should be things such as freedom of speech and religious liberty and so forth. So they also would agree, not with the specifics in my book, but with the general principles of it. So yeah, the whole idea was basically to equip people who are feeling pressured into silence? To be able to grasp the importance of the issues and then to speak reasonably about them—that—that that was my whole thing. Was hey, you know, I think people know where they stand. I—I I think they're either uncertain whether or not it's appropriate to say where they stand and under what circumstances, and then, of course, what the heck do you say when your back's against the wall and you're feeling the heat?
0: Yeah. So, how do we stand as Christians? How do we stand for biblical truth? without coming across as angry or weak.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in the book, I uh, I tried to point out the difference between a raver and a caver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, full disclosure, I've been both. I've <laughs> been a jerk and I've been a wimp. I've done them both. So I got no stones to throw here. Okay. But I just got to point out both raving and caving are common problems. Now, The raving issue is when people just are either so angry or they're so hostile to a group or they're so tired of being told you're a homophobe, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a sexist, that they want to come out swinging, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and you you know, some people just like to fight. I mean, that's just their nature. They enjoy it. And uh, as a result, they come across not only with the wrong attitude, but they make the wrong statements. Um, you know, it's easy to pull out quotes from 50 years ago and, um, talk about how stupidly, just for example, a lot of Christians spoke on the issue of homosexuality. I mean, there's, there's a long list of remarks that were made by Christian leaders that should not have been made, but I mean, even a few years ago when we had that tragedy at the Pulse nightclub in Florida and, um, a a gunman went in and slaughtered. Yeah. Uh, a lot of gay and lesbian customers and their friends and even family members. Beckett, I I saw on YouTube the uh, pastors, some of the, you know, there were fringe, but there they were, who were saying, well, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. We got rid of a few sodomites. The world's a better place. Good grief. Hey, okay, that wasn't long ago. So we talk about this stuff like it's all Stone Age. It's not. There is still that hostility out there. So I think that, that on the one hand, We got to check our own attitude. Do I really want to win people or do I just want to win my argument with people? Because there's a big difference. Yeah. And I'm working on that one. I'm working hard on it because over the last few years, especially, I've had to to admit my attitude is getting more hardened to the point where I don't want to win the souls as much as I want to win the fight. I want to be right. You know? Yeah. Well, that's not what the kingdom of God is made of. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know, and we we have to remember because it's. I get into that mindset too because the, the culture is just so <laughs> chaotic and insane right now, and unreasonable, by the way. And I get yeah, and unreasonable, and I get it sometimes. I get into that mindset, and I and I then I have to like backpedal and be like, wait a minute, there but for the grace of God, go I like I used right. to be that guy, and like, right. what am I doing? You know, I used <laughs> to be. You know, at gay rallies and, you know, I wanted to, I tried to create a show about gay culture in America and like, you know, yeah. celebrating it and, uh, almost sold the show to a, pr- a production company. Wow. So, so I, I just have to remind myself, wait a minute. I used to, <laughs> I used to be in the dark too. And we need to pray for these, you know, we need to pray for the world. We need to pray for these people because they need Jesus. Basically, they,
1: everyone needs Jesus is the bottom line. Right. And, and, um, and that's an important point, is what do I really want? Do I really just want to shut people down or do I want to see them live? And and if I can add one quick point, Beckett. Yeah. When I was with the gay church and was a gay activist, whenever we heard Christians say hateful things about gays, man, we loved it. We loved it. Because all it did was prove our point. See, the church hates us. See, they're all hostile. Ignore what they say. It It was just easy for us to use that to discredit the Christian voice. The last thing I think we want to do is make statements that would discredit the Christian voice and the gospel witness.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, you write in the book, and Christians in a Council Culture, you say, if you breathe, you believe. Hmm. And what, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, even as I listened to that, I think, well, duh, thank you, Joe. That was profound. <laughs> but uh, okay, I know. But it, even if it's overstating the obvious, let's, let's figure. Yeah, you do believe you have an opinion. You think some things are right. You think some things are wrong. Now, what's the natural thing you want to do when you have an opinion? You want to express it. When you are in a position to express it, it goes through a mental committee. Now, committees can really be a nuisance because they tend to get bogged down in too much detail. So when I run something through my mental committee, Like, okay, I'm on the spot. I'm saying a hostile interview or a secular environment and somebody just asked me a hard question. Oops, the middle committee kicks into gear. Uh, Danger Will Robinson. Are you (laughs) going to say something that's going to alienate people? Could you lose your career? Will you lose this relationship? What are the ramifications? Are you going to look stupid? Which to me is my greatest nightmare. (laughs) So, okay, it goes through the committee. And so often the committee hands down the recommendation, shut up or hedge or be evasive. Now, there are times we really should shut up, or there are times we should be discreet. There are times we should say, I want to stick to the broader issues, not the specifics. But there are plenty of times when I think clarity is called for. And that's why I say, if you breathe, you believe. If you believe something, at the very least, be committed to clarity about what you believe. Mm -hmm. Because clarity, at the risk of sounding like a bumper sticker, is charity. Clarity is charity. It isn't loving to be vague. One of the things I loved about your testimony was when you you talked about how you appreciated the men you met at the uh, coffee shop being honest with you and not doing a bait and switch, just letting you know where they stood politely, respectfully, but clearly. So you knew what you were dealing with. Jesus was nothing if not clear yeah and by our standards today man that guy would have been a lousy infomercial for his own work wouldn't he <laughs> he said basically you want to yeah. follow be good for you come die take up yeah, your his p r t
0: his p r t would have been fired today if- <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely you know but you know what nobody could accuse him of bait and switch exactly. so that if you're going to follow him you're doing it with terms that he encouraged you to consider when he said count the cost
0: yeah and so and you also talk about tolerance in your book and We all know, you know, because I remember back in the 80s and 90s, you know, we all wanted tolerance. We all as 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 a gay man, like we I wanted, you know, everyone to tolerate me. But talk about and I talk about this in my book, too. But talk about kind of how the word tolerance has changed its meaning over the last, you
1: know, decades or or years. Hey, it did, didn't it? You know, I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Beckett. I haven't talked to you about it, but. Uh, I'm not in any way justifying what I did when I was a a pro-gay spokesman, much less when I was involved in homosexuality. But I got to say, I would not have recognized this movement we see today. In my day, we really meant it when we said we want tolerance. I mean, I, I never thought, I didn't know anybody who thought in terms of Let's shut people down if they don't approve of homosexuality. Let's cost people their career, their livelihood. Let's mar them and tar them and feather them. No, that wasn't where we were at at all. We we really meant it when we said we believe in pluralism. Now, that doesn't mean I was justified in my sin. I was in very serious sin. But as a former gay activist, I don't recognize a lot of the goals and tactics of the current gay rights movement because it is not about tolerance. The word has morphed even just a few years ago. You remember all those cute bumper stickers that said coexist. Yeah. Well, forget that, baby. I mean, we're, we're, that is now no longer chic. And I think what what it's done is it's evolved into an unreasonable puritanism. And in this unreasonable puritanical mindset, it's like, if people don't conform to our social orthodoxy, they must be shunned, don't know them, don't have anything to do with them, don't allow them any of the liberties afforded to the rest of us. And this is where you get right into animal farm type thinking, don't you? Of yeah. course, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than George others. Orwell, by the way, animal farm, yeah. Yes, exactly. Because in, in Orwell's, and gosh, the man was so prophetic, wasn't he? I mean- right. What what he basically pointed out was the times we are in and the times of totalitarianism, you rarely see tyrants admit that they are tyrants. Tyrants come across as reasonable and say, of course, we're not tyrannical. We are fair. All people have equal rights, but some people are more equal than others. And what we learned, especially last year, Beckett, and I think we are still seeing it, is the belief that normal rules of engagement no longer apply. Right. People do not fit the social orthodoxy. You don't need to show them respect. You don't need to show them consideration. They don't have the right to free speech or to free enterprise. They should have no rights at all. They should be shunned. They should be silenced. They should be shipped off because shipped
0: they are- Shipped off to the gulag is really- To one the, the gulag. Point. They're oh, inferior. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I mean, Douglas Murray talks about this in his book, The Madness of Crowds. Have you read that book? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh! Okay, so that book is is amazing. Douglas Murray is is gay. He's British. He's he's in. He's not a Christian, but he talks about the madness of it. Like you're saying, like even when back in the day when we just wanted tolerance, you know. But and he talks about. um, He gives this illustration in the book of, and he has a chapter called "Gay." He's there's four chapters: Gay, Trans, Women, and uh, Black. And it's a really amazing book. You've got to read it, but
1: I've got to see this.
0: Yeah. Uh, he gives this illustration of the train in terms of the LGBTQ movement. The train, this train finally arrives at the station, right? If the gay marriage is legal, everything's legal under the law. Everything's legal and not only legal, everything's celebrated. So the train finally arrives at the station, but instead of the passengers getting off the train, suddenly the train lurches. And it barrels through the train station and destroys everything in its wake. And that's, he talks about the overreach of the gay community. And that's what's happening right now. It's just like this kind of, it's almost like this terror is going on. It's like, if you, you know, if you don't agree, affirm everything I believe as a gay, you know, as an LGBTQ person, like then you're canceled completely. Like it's just the overreach is astounding.
1: Well, in my book, I tried to point out similar, similarities I see to at least the way Dickens described the extreme um, uh, times in the French Revolution. Right. When you had a very oppressed people with legitimate grievances who overthrew the tyrants and then ostensibly were going to establish some form of justice and equality, but got absolutely drunk with power and became obsessed with retribution, and not only obsessed with retribution, obsessed with some kind of a social purity by which you had to to walk and talk in lockstep with the revolution, and if you didn't, to the guillotine with you. And I think that it appeals to something, really our worst nature, our desire to overpower each other and to control other human beings. I think this kind of thinking appeals to it, which I think is one of the reasons so many people are susceptible to cancel culture madness, is because it, it gives people an opportunity to at least tell themselves they are virtuous, they are in the right, they are fighting the oppressor, they're fighting for the oppressed, let's go. And and with all of that, they jump on a bandwagon without even examining whether or not it's a legitimate bandwagon.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think about that all the time. I think about the French Revolution a lot because the Jacobins and Robespierre, they wanted to change the the, pol- the political landscape in france and but they ended up not only guillotining uh, thousands and thousands of people but they themselves were they they, right. they a lot of them a lot of the jacobins were guillotined and robespierre was guillotined right and it just was like a bloody mess literally and um and i feel like we're kind of in that we're in that s- state right now in this culture where it's like People like if they I think I feel like if people could, they would just guillotine you. I mean, (laughs) if they if it was legal or it was sanctioned in some way, they would guillotine you.
1: You know what I and I used to think that that kind of thinking was absurd, Beckett, up until maybe a decade ago. But what have we seen in history of not the fact that once you start marginalizing a group, and removing its basic rights, and teaching the public that that group is dangerous and unacceptable, should you really be surprised when people start killing the members of that group? Now, again, are we going to basically say our primary goal is to avoid being persecuted? No. But there is no honor in being persecuted if you could do something to prevent the persecution. If there's a legitimate way to to keep a just approach to a society, and you have failed to avail yourself of that way, then I don't think there's honor in your persecution because it's kind of like a self-induced martyrdom. That's no martyrdom at all to my thinking. Right.
0: And you, you talk about, there's a chapter um, called why the hostility. And in the very beginning, you say a virus like cancel culture needs someone to infect. And those with an already weakened immune system will be its first targets, which raises the question of the infected. Who are they? and what made them susceptible. Can you talk about that?
1: There's three points I tried to make about that, um, Beckett. There's, there are those who are operating out of convenience, and those who are operating out of conscience, and the, there are those who are operating out of conviction. The convenience factor comes into play when Christianity collides with a social or a political agenda. And that happens. I mean, we saw that happen when Jesus was in earthly form and and we've seen it in church history ever since then. We're not looking for a fight, but the fact is when Christianity is practiced, when it is preached, when it is manifest, somebody is going to be inconvenienced. It can't be helped because the, the Christian teaching, not only on salvation, but on God's, God's will for humanity, includes a high priority placed on independence, on personal liberty, on um, uh, self-sufficiency working to provide for yourself or working to make a living and it certainly teaches allegiance supreme allegiance only to god not to a government well that's not exactly a big government's friend is it i mean christianity in it's truest sense is no friend of people who want a hyper expanded government system so to people who have political or social agendas that are at odds with christian teaching christianity, christianity is a huge inconvenience that's one reason I believe that that there is hostility. There's also the problem of conscience. People whose consciences are being pricked mm-hmm. by Christian teaching. Now, I, I got to say, um, when I see these, the, when I see opposition to Christian teaching on abortion or or um, uh, gender or sexuality, I think it's one thing if people oppose our viewpoints, but when they are almost, they, they seem to be obsessed with shutting us down. I often think, well, now. Do you really feel good about where you're at? Cause you know, when people feel at peace with where they are, by and large, they don't need to shut down other people. Yeah. If, if I disagree with someone's viewpoint, I think it's stupid, idiotic, blah, 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 even dangerous. I say, bring that sucker out in the light. Let's talk about it. Let's expose it. Let's dismantle it with reasonable conversation and debate. But what I don't say is shut it down because I'm comfortable enough, I hope with myself. That if somebody holds a conference down the street saying Christians are crazy, they're mentally ill, you know, or even more personal to me, people who walk away from homosexuality are just self-hating self homophobes. I don't like that, but I'm not going to try to disrupt their conference or shut them down. So I think there's a conscience issue, you know, sort of like Stephen preaching to the Jewish council and they yeah. heard what he said and they were pricked in the conscience. The guys went ballistic, didn't they? So I think conscience yeah. is a problem. But um, there's also conviction that is true believers. And there are true believers. Like I mentioned earlier, Beckett, these are the days of unexamined causes. I think people are hungry for a cause, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's something in us that God created that makes us want to be a part of something noble, and I think that's a good thing. However, this is also a time of intellectual laziness. People don't check things out. They just don't do their homework. So if you wave a cause in front of people and say, here's the villain, here are the victims. Go get them. A lot of people go, okay, I'm in, yeah. without even examining whether or not the claims you're making are true, whether or not the accusations have any merit. They're just so anxious to be part of a cause. This is why I think movements that are extreme, like the Black Lives Matter movement or Antifa, or you know, even the, the, a lot of the movements involved with the woke generation, with cancel culture, th- yeah, they're pretty extreme, but they appeal to people's sense of, I want the adventure. Of fighting for the right um, the the right cause not the political right and and I think that that because today we don't have as many overt causes to fight as say like when I was a boy there was the civil rights movement man now there there's an honorable bandwagon you could have jumped on you know or certainly the French underground or the the uh, uh, European underground during the Holocaust that's a noble cause. Well, I think people are hungry for that. So they will call a cause noble, even if it's not just for the sake of telling themselves, I'm part of something great. And I think for that reason too, a lot of people are hating us and you know what? They don't even know us. Yeah. And that's
0: funny because Douglas Murray talks about that too. And in terms of the, in his chapter on gay called gay, he, um, he talks about how the gay, gay, the LGBTQ community today it's almost like they, they're upset that they weren't at the Stonewall Inn riots in 1969. And they, so they want to somehow storm the barricades mm-hmm. because they missed out mm-hmm. on that adventure. And you're right. It's like, it's like, well, I was, it's like these, these kids have all the, they ha- not only have all the rights that could possibly given, be given to them, but they have Hollywood. They have the entire culture behind them. Yeah. Now. But they're still storming the barricades because they have that
1: desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves. You know what I sometimes think, Beckett? I think sometimes when people get hooked on seeing themselves as victims and people who disagree with with them as oppressors, enough is never enough. Because if they got everything they say they want, what would they have to do? They'd have to shed that identity. Right. And I think a lot of people are so invested in that now. And it's not just a gay issue. I mean, that's an issue that goes to so many different subgroups and identity groups. But I I really think for a lot of people, it'd be like heaven would be hell (laughs) because everything would be just, everything would be equitable, and I would no longer have an identity that I cling to. So I will make up an injustice where it doesn't exist so that I can keep fighting injustice. Even if it makes me into a Don Quixote tilting at the windmills, I'm going to (laughs) fight.
0: Yes, you're quixotic. Um, exactly. That's that's what it is. And what um, you mentioned too—that there's three ways that Satan tries to destroy God's handiwork. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that we 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 got to remember. And and Beckett, I'm not one for pulling out Satan too easily because I think a lot of that is just magical thinking and uh, ascribing to Satan things that we do ourselves. I've often said. I think sometimes Satan tells his boys, leave Joe Dallas alone. He can mess up his own life without any help from <laughs> us, you know? But by the same token, of course we've got an adversary who hates us, and he's always hated God, and he's a limited being, right? He's limited yeah. in that he was created. He's not omnipotent like God. So what's he going to do? He can't just go punch God out. He can't even approach God without God's permission, according to Job. But what can he do? Um, I you know, full confession, I'm a sinner, but I love the Godfather films. And and, in one of them, Michael Corleone points out, when my enemies want to get to me, they don't attack me. They go for the people I love. Right. Which is true, right? Somebody somebody threatens you, eh. Somebody threatens people you love. It's like, wow, that something weird happens in you, you know? Well, that's what Satan can do to God. He can go after the objects of God's love. And so what I think he'll try to do is first prevent the human experience from even happening. Do not conceive life. How do you do that? Well, one way you can do it, confuse the genders, blur the lines, you know, prevent conception from even happening. Mm -hmm. But then if it happens, despite that, the second goal is, well, then despite, then then prevent it from being born. If human life was conceived, kill it. There you have abortion. If... Human life has been both conceived and born against your best efforts. What's the final thing you can do? Keep it from ever being born again. Because Satan is not about life. He's about death. He's about eternal death. And he wants to take as many people down with him as he can. Now, how do you keep people from to, from being born again? Well, one thing you must do is remove any sense of personal sin that they have. That's where progressive Christianity comes in. It teaches people that they're not sinful. They're, in fact, wonderful, just as they are. That there are many ways to God, not just Jesus. Thereby, the cross is not necessary. Thereby, being born again is not necessary. And if you are engaged in behaviors that both defile your body, harden your heart, and then keep you from the kingdom, like homosexuality, adultery, transgenderism, drunkenness, whatever, Why, then that way you keep people in the dark. So I believe his goal is either prevent life from even being conceived, or if it's conceived, prevent it from being born, or if it's been born, prevent it from being born again. That's why in the book I tried to tackle those key issues, abortion, homosexuality, transgender, critical race theory, the idea of social justice as opposed to individual responsibility and progressive Christianity. Because I think all of them play directly into Satan's approach To modern humanity
0: yes and and on the well on the progressive christianity issue why why do you think so many young people i mean i guess it's as you may have just answered this with satan but why are so many young people who were raised in orthodox christian homes falling for the lie of progressive christianity
1: yeah yeah you know i i i mean in the broadest sense i don't know my educated guess is that we really dropped the ball in teaching the word and teaching people how to read and study the word. Um, the, the stats on biblical illiteracy are appalling, really. Yeah. Um, we, we, we are a modern church without much of a biblical foundation. A, a very high percentage of believers have never read the Bible through, do not on a regular basis read and study it. And look, I'm not talking about scholastics here. I'm talking about reading. Like you and I were talking about books. Okay. I could talk to you about A Tale of Two Cities. I am not an English literature major. I'm not a PhD. I'm not a scholar. But I read the darn book. In fact, I've read it probably 20 times. It's my favorite of all novels, A Tale of Two Cities. So if you tell me something that's not in that book, okay, if you tell me that Madame Defarge used to babysit for Lucy Darnett, I'm going to (laughs) go, no, no, I've read the book. Yes. I'm not a scholar, I'm not a Dickens expert, but I've read the book enough to know that, no, you're wrong about that. That's not in the book. That's what biblical discernment is. It's discernment based on a working knowledge of the Bible. If you don't have that, if you don't have a working knowledge of the Bible, you can't biblically discern what is an error. And then what happens? You're set up, man. You're going to fall for error when it comes along because something comes along looking nice. You're going to think, well, Jesus was nice. Christianity is nice. This is nice therefore, it must be true. And if you oppose it, you're not being nice, therefore, you must be wrong. That's what a believer who is not biblically grounded would say. And, you know, you brought up the immune system earlier, Beckett, I feel strongly about this, having seen firsthand what AIDS does to people. Mm -hmm. The terrible thing about AIDS is it makes you susceptible to diseases you would not otherwise be susceptible to. Because you got a healthy immune system. But when the immune system is broken down, diseases that would otherwise bounce off you, now they take over and they can kill you. The same is true of error. Why are so many young people jumping onto doctrinal error? Why are so many believers falling for prevalent cultural errors that are masquerading as Christianity? They're not well-grounded biblically. They haven't studied the Bible on their own, thereby they cannot discern truth from a biblical perspective. Their immune system is broken down they're susceptible, there you go.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned abortion and you talk about, in the book, you really get into, you break it down in such a great way, but just give us a couple examples of, of what the pro-choice movement tries to convince us of and what, what the reality is. Just kind of give us a couple examples of, of
1: that. Good, I, I think that the pro-choice movement is about deflection. When we talk about abortion, pro-choice apologists rarely will talk to you about abortion. What they will talk to you about is a woman's right to choose. They will talk to you about how misogynistic it is to oppose that. They will talk to you about the tragedy of back alley abortions. They will talk to you about the freedoms that women should have over their own bodies. Now, what have they just done? They have deflected the talk from the issue. The issue is not, should women be respected? Should they have the right in most areas of life to choose? Should they have autonomy? Everybody's on the same page about that, or we should be if we're not. Um, but the question remains, when an abortion occurs, has a life been taken? That's what they don't want to talk about. And I think on this point, um, Beckett, uh, science... Is actually making it easier to logically be pro choice. I mean, it's darned hard when you be pro life to go to be pro life, right? I mean, pro life. Excuse (laughs) me. Yeah, you heard it here first. Joe (laughs) Dallas has gone to the dark side. Sorry. No, to (sighs) be pro life, um, because it's hard to look at a sonogram and not think, yeah, that's a life, which I think is exactly why so many women who are pregnant change their minds about abortion when they see the child inside.
0: Yeah. And, um, you in on the on the issue of homosexuality on page 99 and you kind of break this down too in such a great way um and just give us a couple cuz in the uh in the keep it going section you say the following are some of the questions or arguments you're likely to hear when discussing homosexuality along with some suggested points for keeping the discussion going and uh can you just make a couple, like, for example, one of them is like, I was born gay. So God made me that way. And God doesn't make mistakes. Like what's your response to that?
1: Well, that's a common argument and it's an understandable one because most people who identify as gay, felt that way from early in life. I know I sure did, Beckett. Yeah, me too. Uh, And I also know it was involuntary. I never chose to be attracted to the same sex. I discovered I was attracted to the same sex. Big difference. So it would have been easy for me to believe I was born that way. I get it. However, the argument is based on um, a falsehood and then it's based on a presumption. The falsehood is that it's been proven that people are born gay. It hasn't. I mean, as we speak, there is no definitive proof that people are born homosexual, um, despite some pretty valiant efforts over the last couple of decades to prove that they are. And I think both sides have been wrong on this point, Beckett. I think that that the pro-gay side or the gay affirming side has said, if we can prove that that gay people are born that way, that will legitimize it. And and the traditional side has said, if we can prove people are not born gay, then that will prove that it's not right. Well, neither side is correct on that point. We are a fallen race. Right. So what I said in the book is we are all created by God. We are not all God created us to be. No, I do not believe people are born gay. I am still open to the possibility that there are genetic or hormonal or whatever um, elements that might play into a person's nature, which makes that person more susceptible. Just like, I I mean, to get really stereotypical, shoot, a lot of gay people I've known, primarily men, but also a lot of lesbian women have been very sensitive, very creative, very, you know, very uh, emotionally susceptible Well, okay. Does that mean they were born gay? Of course not. Plenty of straight people are emotional and sensitive and creative, but it could be that if that inborn nature is combined with environmental factors, that could account for what creates homosexuality. Full disclosure, I don't know what the heck causes it. Not really. I I believe that as a fallen race, it's a manifestation of the sin nature, but why does it show up in some people and not in others? I still don't know. I think this side of heaven, I don't think anybody's going to be able to say with integrity they know why in every case someone is attracted to the same sex. But my big question is, if something is inborn, does that settle the argument? No, it does not. We're a fallen race. There are such things as inborn tendencies towards alcoholism, violence, depression that God never intended. Therefore, let's not assume that even if something could be proven to be inborn, that it was also something God created and intended for the individual.
0: Yeah. It's like a, a scholar that I've read. He, he puts it really well and he's like, we're all, all humans are born with innate impulses. Mm-hmm. And even if so, if you're born gay, let's say, and I, I happen to think that I don't obviously I don't have the answer either, but I, I, I feel like there is possibly a hormonal com- component to it in utero and in, in uterine or however you say that in utero. Yeah. Because it, there, it just seems just from my kind of just anecdotal observation over the years, it just seems there's a hormonal aspect to it. Um, but as you said, we're all fallen. Our genetic coding is falling, fallen. Our hormones are fallen. And, uh, and, and the scholar says, you know, even heterosexual men are born with innate impulses to have sex with as many, as many women as they can, but they right. ha- we're not that doesn't mean we should do that you know <laughs> so so yeah i think that whether we're cool. you're born gay or not it doesn't it's it's a moot point i talk about this in my book too it's a moot point because we're fallen to the core including our genetic coding including our hormones everything else
1: right you know i i used to laugh about this but actually in light of what you just said i think it's more relevant than ever time magazine ran a cover story about 20 years ago that said adultery may be in our genes, that men may be genetically wired <laughs> towards adultery. And you know what? That may be right. But the question is, so what are we going to do? Legitimize uh, polygamy because men are genetically wired that way? Of course not.
0: Right. And then in, in the in the chapter two, when you talk about homosexuality, you get into gay weddings. What's your... Because this this is a question I get all the time. Should I go to my son's gay wedding? Should I go to my niece's gay wedding? Like what is, what's the answer to that? Because it's hard to really give a good
1: answer. I've got a simple belief, but man, the emotions are complicated. So I don't say this easily. Um, I do. First of all, let me, let me qualify this. I think there are some issues that are doctrinally crystal clear and we need to be adamant about them. And then there are some that seem to be more a matter of conscience. And two of the commonest ones I hear are, should I go to a same-sex wedding? Or if I have a trans friend who says, I was born, Bill, but I want you to call me Mary. Should we call that person Mary? In my opinion, um, this is just me now. Yeah. I think these are conscience issues. And I I think there's room for disagreement. And I'm not going to make either one of them a hill to die on. That said, I could not in good conscience go to a same-sex wedding ceremony regardless. And the reason I couldn't is because of the way I view a wedding ceremony. I do not believe it's a social event. I do not believe it's just a social event. If a gay friend of mine has a birthday party, I'm there with a present. If a lesbian friend of mine graduates from the university, I'm there saying, congratulations, let's party. I mean, that's wonderful. But a wedding, I believe, is something you attend as a statement of celebration and confirmation. And I believe if I cannot say I bless this union, I don't believe I have any business being there. Now, that's, that's no different than if a Christian friend of mine dumped his wife. For a younger model, and goes and marries her, and asks me to come, I couldn't. Right, for the same reason I couldn't go to a same-sex wedding. I could not, in good conscience, say by my presence here I bless this union. And I believe at that ceremony, if you cannot say that, you shouldn't be there. Can I quickly tell a personal story? Yeah. On this? way back in 1987, I married my wife Renee. Now I had uh, I had some gay friends. Um, very few by that time, but I did have some. And two of them were a, a a male couple I'd known for years, really wonderful guys. We had a close bond. I wanted them to be there. They disagreed with me. We had talked it all out. They had met Renee. We all liked each other. We'd even gone out to dinner together. No big deal. We had different positions on it, but I wanted them there. They called me. Now, remember, Beckett, this was 1987, 34 years ago. My gay friend called me and said, hey, Don and I, can't be there. We love you, Joe. We respect you. We love Renee. She's wonderful. And we hope you have a happy life. But we see you as a gay man. We don't believe a gay man should ever marry a woman. We couldn't go to your wedding and say that we in good conscience celebrate what you're doing. As much as we love you, please don't cut us off. But that's where we stand. Wow. Holy cow. Beckett, I think they knew something a lot of believers today still don't know. That wedding ceremony <laughs> is a sacred event. If you can't say you believe in it, in my opinion, you just shouldn't be there. So that's my take on whether or not a believer should attend a same-sex wedding ceremony.
0: Yeah, and I've talked about this before, but I, when I first, right after I got saved, I was put on the spot by a gay friend at dinner. We were out to dinner, and um, this woman and my this gay guy put me on the spot and, and, and they're like, you're coming to the gay wedding. Right. And I, and I was, I was trying to be, you know, a kind of a, I was trying to be an inclusive Christian or something. I just wanted to be nice to them. So I was like, of course I'm coming. And then uh, of course I get to the wedding and this is like, I mean, I just like, I was like six months saved at this point. I get to the wedding and I'm like, Whoa, this is crazy. Like I, it was I hadn't anticipated how I was going to feel. And once I saw everyone there, all these people celebrating this union between two men, I just, my heart sank and I just felt almost sick. And I just, I just was like, I had to get out of there. So it was actually a Uh terrible decision on my part. So personally for me, that it's a, it's, and I, I agree with you. It's a conscience issue, but personally, personally for me, there's, I would never do that again. I'll never go to a gay wedding again.
1: Yeah. And you know, again, you would, I would bet you the farm Beckett, you wouldn't have felt that way if you had just showed up at your gay friend's birthday party. Yeah. Or if you had just gone to a gay friend's house, there's not that sense of, Whoa, I shouldn't be here in most cases. But in that case, I, I, I can see exactly why a person would feel that way. And I can also see why a person with the best of intentions would go. I love this person. Why should I, refuse their wedding invitation. There's a lot of emotion behind this too. Because c- Could you imagine if you had to say this, what, what I just said to a brother in your family or a sister in your family or someone you loved very much and, right. and have to tell them, no, I can't be there because I don't believe in it. This is not easy stuff we're talking about. There's some pretty high emotion involved. My feeling is we have to let truth dictate our decisions and feel the hard emotions we're going to feel. I'm not going to pretend I'm comfortable with this stuff I'm not, I'm not comfortable saying no to somebody who I know is going to be hurt by what I say no to, but I'm less comfortable doing something that I know I am going to feel guilty about having done it.
0: Yes. And so let's, we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask you one last question. What Mm -hmm. in the final chapter of your book, again, it's Christians in a cancel culture. You guys have to get it. It's amazing. Uh, You say, you talk about how Christians May soon pay a high price for sound doctrine. What? How do we move forward as believers? How do we move forward in this culture? And and given that we, you know, it's very, it's becoming more and more costly. Like, what? What is your advice? How do we move forward?
1: (laughs) I think one thing we got to do, like yesterday, is close ranks, not against people, but for each other. I think we're going to need each other more than ever as we move ahead. Now, I have to say, Beckett, I think that as we move ahead, a lot of believers are going to say adios because they're going to basically cave in areas that we cannot cave. But those of us who won't cave, I think we may find ourselves feeling like Paul did by the end of his life when he said, you know what, I'm pretty much alone here, Timothy, so be sure you get over here before winter because everybody has bailed on me. I think that's the way a lot of us are going to be feeling. And I think that's why we're going to need each other more than ever. I think our friendships, we better take more seriously. Our church attendance, good grief. I I do think we bail on our churches too easily. We get a little offended with something. We're disappointed in something. We don't like the worship music. We leave the church to go find another. And we don't establish roots with people. And I think we're missing out on so much. But now it's going to be about survival. So I think we're going to have to close ranks and recognize the early church loved each other fervently. And that wasn't just emotional. It was very practical. We're going to need each other's expertise. What do you do when you lose your job because you refuse to bend the knee? What do you do when your family forsakes you and you're so lonely you want to jump off a cliff? What do you do when, when you're being sued by somebody because you said something that they didn't like? You're going to need the body to fall back on. You're going to need people to support you, advise you, be there for you. We're, we're going to have to work harder on this whole idea of koinonia, of, of being very involved with each other and keeping our communion yes. deep. And I think we're going to have to keep asking ourselves the hard question. What are we here for? What are we really trying to accomplish? Do we want to accomplish a life in which comfort overrides all else? Or are we willing to admit, hey, this is temporal. We are running a race. The idea in running a race is be as unfettered as you can be and keep your eye on the prize. And don't be so hung up on what the guy in the lane next to you is doing. Keep your eye on your own race And and of course, be there for each other, but by the same token, keep your eye on Jesus, which sounds so vague, but I mean, seriously, more than ever, we're going to have to take him at his word when he said, abide in me, I in you. The The branch cannot bring forth fruit unless it abides in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Now we're going to all have to take our intimacy with him pretty seriously because you know what? without our solid investment of intimacy in him, and then secondarily our investment in each other, I don't think we'll make it. I really don't.
0: Those are very wise words to end on. Guys, the book is Christians in a Cancel Culture, speaking with truth and grace in a hostile world. Joe Dallas, you're a very wise man. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Hey, you are so gracious. Thank you for having me, man. Always a pleasure talking with you, Beckett.
0: All right. Thank you, guys. See you guys next week on The Beckett Cook Show. Sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com.